Greetings and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a show about how satellites, space technology, and exploration are changing the solar system with your host, Coleman Lutz. 60 seconds in space, or should we say Mars? In place of water, human urine could help make lunar concrete with regolith. I'm curious to see how this urine will react with fungi and the mycelia in uh, concrete. And Elon Musk and SpaceX um, are planning to build one starship a week by the end of 2020. Also, nano-cardboard flying aircraft weighing less than a fruit fly could levitate on Mars because the atmosphere is 1% pressure of Earth and has 3 eighths the gravity. Researchers are developing tinier chemical sensors on these flyers that could detect methane and water on these planets. And finally, Elon Musk and SpaceX are tentatively planning to launch the next generation of deep space telescopes to image exoplanets from low Earth orbit. All the links are in the description of this episode. We're glad to have today's guest, Dr. Scott Solomon, who is a biologist, science communicator, and professor at Rice University. We reached out to him after he gave an insightful TEDx talk on evolutionary biology on Mars back in 2019. Thanks so much, Scott, for for uh, being on the Frontier Space podcast today. We uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Really exciting discussion ahead. Uh, I was wondering what inspired you to get into studying Mars? Well, my interest in Mars actually uh, comes from sort of a convoluted path. I'm an evolutionary biologist by training, and I've been a, um, a professor at Rice University for a little over 10 years now. And when I started as a, a new professor, and so I asked them a question um, which was whether they thought humans are still evolving, and if so, in what ways. And it turned out that that question was uh, the one question that really got a lot of conversations going. Students had a lot of to do was to take on um, the task of putting all of that information together into a book. And that book became Future Humans, um, a book that I published with Yale University Press in 2016. And what I tried to do there was to put all that information together to ask the, the question, are humans still evolving? And the answer um, that I came up with was, yes, quite clearly humans are still evolving, but we're evolving in ways that are different from how we've evolved in the past. There's this notion that if we were to successfully create a human settlement on Mars, a self-sustaining settlement on Mars, where people lived, reproduced, Right, had families, had kids, raised their children, and um, and that that was successful for a long period of time, that it could actually trigger evolutionary changes in people that um, would be really fascinating and and important. And so that was sort of how I ended um, ended future humans with this notion that in the long term future, our ultimate fate might be determined in part by whether we choose to branch out and become an interplanetary species, maybe. You know, uh, one species of human living on Mars, another species living on uh, Europa, and who knows, <laughs> others elsewhere in the in the atmosphere, right? Uh, in the exactly. atmosphere, in the in the universe. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, I love that um, kind of future 
reality that we're gradually somewhat evolving into. My next question for you. So, so Mars has three-eighths the gravity of Earth, and how might this alone influence evolution? We know a bit about how space affects the human body by studying astronauts that have spent time um, in the International Space Station and before that on the on the shuttle. So we do know a fair bit about how being in a lower gravity environment affects the human body. Um, what we know is that um, musculoskeletal system has uh, you know has a hard time because we evolved to be um, you know sort of counteracting gravity here on Earth. So our bones um, and our muscles they react to the force of gravity pushing down on them. And when we don't have that force, it makes both our muscles weaker and our bones uh, less strong. It basically makes the bones more brittle. But th at the same time, everything we know about how spaceflight affects the human body is based on studying short-term exposure. And so the question becomes, what happens to a, a, a child that is born on Mars and lives their entire life in that three-eighths gravity environment? The short answer is we don't know because nobody's ever done that research. Um, but we, we do know that, um, that bones grow um, a lot during early childhood growth and development. And um, so this is a critical time period where things like nutrition can play a big role, right? Children who are, are malnourished, they don't um, grow a, um, a normal skeleton and they suffer consequences for the rest of their lives in some cases. So it's possible that this could have evolutionary consequences because it could affect uh, survival and reproduction. And survival and reproduction are sort of the yin and the yang of evolution, right? <laughs> evolution is all about uh, passing genes to the next generation. To do that, you have to reproduce. In order to reproduce, you have to be alive. So. Um, survival of the fittest is really more uh, uh, about reproduction than it is about survival. One of the things that's interesting with gravity is the possibility that um, having weak bones could be a real risk for childbirth for women. And so it's possible that women who um, have lost bone density as they've aged would actually not be able to withstand the, the forces that would be imposed on them during childbirth on Mars. And this could actually be deadly to both the mother and, and the child potentially. So that's interesting because that actually leads to generations in the future that would be born with denser bones, which is kind of the opposite of what we often see in science fiction portrayals of um, people on Mars or other places with lower gravity where we see them sort of thin and spindly and um, uh, you know, sort of long and lean, right? This could actually make us look more like some of our ancestors, like Neanderthals that had very thick, robust skeletons um, because they would have to be able to start that way in life in order to withstand the bone density loss. Fascinating. It's uh, a lot to take in. This could even become some sort of uh, biological like threshold to support travel to Mars and maybe not a policy, but more of a kind of a guideline in general acceptance, uh, like, like a guideline if the diameter of, of the bones of a female's pelvis is, is a certain threshold, I don't, I don't know. You know, initially, while we're getting this sort, sorted out, I think uh, they generally shouldn't be fornicating without a rubber at least. So. 
Well, I mean, it's true. We don't know much about reproduction in uh, beyond Earth. And so um, I think this is actually one of the big question marks before, you know, anybody could have any serious discussions about creating a, a, a permanent human settlement. The reality is we don't know enough about um, human reproduction and child development in those types of environments for that to be something safe and, and ethical. But you're also right that thinking about who would get to start these these colonies, these settlements, is a really important question. Wouldn't we want everyone on Earth to have an equal opportunity to contribute to the important effort of creating a new human presence in another world? Um, how do you decide what are the most important factors for being included? I think it's also fascinating that, um, you know, at the same time, a lot of us um, or the early uh, settlers may want to be the father or mother of, of the first generation baby settlers on Mars. NASA scientists say um, only a month on orbit in microgravity can increase astronaut height by as much as two inches or, or five centimeters. Um, and I remember hearing that um, astronauts on Mars could grow as much as two to six inches in the long term. Yeah, so one of the things that happens in, in lower gravity is that the spine is no longer being compressed, right? You don't have the force of gravity pushing down on the spine. So what tends to happen is, it, the, is the spine essentially elongates. The bones themselves aren't growing, but the soft tissue in between them is able to expand because it's not being compressed. And so, yeah, oftentimes when astronauts return from, uh, from orbit, they are taller than when they left. Um, however, once they are exposed to Earth's gravity again, it starts to push back down on them. And so that's that that's short lived. Fascinating. And what kind of um, human mutations could we anticipate on Mars? Yeah, mutations are really important to think about because mutations ultimately are the source of all variation in any species. And mutations happen naturally. I mean, every time a cell divides, um, there are mutations that, that are um, likely to happen. It's basically just a, a copying error when cells are copying DNA. So a lot of radiation barriers where people are on Mars, they would be exposed to a lot of radiation. Those radi that radiation is going to cause mutations. Now, what mutations specifically, as you asked, uh, is, is impossible to predict for sure. But what we can do is we can look at uh, examples of the types of mutations that, if they happened, might be beneficial and so might be favored by natural selection. And those mutations would become common in later generations. That's what natural selection does. Um, you know, because cancer is going to be such a risk, any mutation that decreases the risk of cancer would probably be very helpful. I already know that some people are more naturally cancer resistant than others for reasons that we don't fully understand. And so, first of all, those might be great candidates for people to, to start our Martian population. But you also might imagine uh, new mutations that pop up that give other people those same level of, of cancer resistance or even to go beyond that. But it could get even more weird because you might even have new types of skin pigmentation that would pop up. Our skin pigment protects us from, from ultraviolet radiation from sun. So the darker your skin is, the more sun protection that you naturally have. But in other species, they use different types of pigments as, as um, protection from ultraviolet radiation. So 
you know, uh, carotenoids are the pigments that give carrots their orange color. So, you know, uh, these carotenoids provide some UV protection. Maybe we would see the evolution of carotenoid or carotenoid-like pigments in uh, people living on Mars, which would help with uh, with radiation protection and could also make them orange. <laughs> so, Recently, a NASA, a NASA model predicted that um, astronauts have um, a little more than a 3% chance of dying of cancer from primarily from exotic space radiation on a Mars mission. And um, I think a lot of people would be willing to take a chance on that 3%, um, myself including. Uh, uh, but but as, as, a, um, as Dr. Robert Zubin mentions, uh, thousands of years ago, there were imaginary dragons that stifled human exploration for centuries. Of course, the other option is to go underground. And that's something that people have suggested is, well, you know, you just use the natural barrier that is created by Martian, um, by Martian regolith and Martian rocks. By going underground, you could potentially protect yourself from almost all of the, of the radiation, assuming that you don't come out onto the surface for any amount of time. Uh, so geologists think that there are lava tubes on Mars that look like the lava tubes we have here on Earth created when when lava is um, cooling more rapidly on the outside of the flow than the inside. So that's like a natural cave that uh, potentially could be a starting point for, for a human settlement. It's kind of mind-boggling to think about. Uh, also reading about how um, adaptations to um, our cardiovascular system and um, our, our vessels in our head might might become more robust to say yeah because the thing is that our our heart and our and our blood vessels have to you know pump blood around the body in a way that works for us here in a you know a 1g environment once you're in a lower gravity environment uh, the heart doesn't have to work quite so hard to pump blood say up to your head right to get to your brain um, and so you know one of the fears is that the heart might you know, basically become weaker. It doesn't need to work as hard um, in order to, to be pumping blood to, uh, to the extremities, not fighting against gravity. Yeah, so if, if you weigh uh, 170 pounds on Earth, you're, you'd weigh around 65 pounds on Mars. <laughs> and... I would imagine there there will be some uh, some fascinating jumping competitions as well. <laughs> yeah, I you know I I play basketball and uh, I I would love to play basketball on Mars because I think I'd finally be able to to dunk. It'd be <laughs> uh, it'd be very satisfying. <laughs> um, I was wondering what what individual organs do you think could be impacted the most. Yeah, we've talked about the heart and the eye. I think those are, are some that would be um, potentially very impacted. Um, you know, big question about the brain, right? How is the brain going to be impacted? There, uh, the, the, the pressure issues that we talked about earlier um, can be relevant for, for brain function. Definitely. I think there's a lot of potential here to study the significance of alternative gravity on on the brain from computer brain interfaces 
Um, yeah, simulation studies, yeah. The, the other one that we should mention is the lungs, right? So we need to know, um, you know, what uh, type of atmosphere we would be able to be breathing. Um, you know, on board the International Space Station, they're able to provide an atmosphere that is fairly similar to the atmosphere that um, <clears throat> that we breathe here on Earth. You know, depending on what the atmospheric conditions are in the habitats that people are living in on Mars, that could trigger uh, changes to the lungs or other organ systems. Um, if oxygen ends up being a, a, you know, rare and valuable commodity, as it, it likely would be, what you might see is that people's bodies react in ways that are similar to what happens when you go to high elevation, like up in the mountains, right? Um, yeah, I was thinking that the, the liver could also uh, take, take a big hit, and, and I think it might be beneficial to bring some um, liver supplements. <laughs> and we're back. All right, are you ready for a Mars joke? Please. Why did the sexually frustrated Martian tell a famous astrophysicist to cross the road? <laughs> Why? The grass looked greener on the other side. Ah. <laughs> Good one. Good one. Um, I was wondering, how, how could settlers share data on how their biology is changing with humans on Earth? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it is possible to have communication back and forth between um, Earth and Mars. There's just a time delay because of the of the distance. So, I mean, I think the types of biomonitoring that we do here on Earth, you know, even imagining something like wearing a you know a Fitbit or other type of device to monitor um, how the body's doing. Definitely. I I think um, wearables will will have a large um, benefit. And I think it's fascinating when, you know, each biological organism, they, they generate terabytes, petabytes of, of, of valuable data. And um, I think each crew member's, um, that their biological repository subtly generates bias, to, to say. Um, and I think it's, it's about kind of finding the commonalities in, in, in such data sets. Um, and, and it gets fascinating um, when when you have interplanetary software updates, uh, maybe during a Martian night or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's going to be complications like that that you know people probably haven't even thought of yet. Yeah. And and why might there be enforced separation and social distancing between humans from Earth and Mars? Yeah, this is a really interesting possibility. Another aspect, it has to do with uh, microorganisms. But those organisms, those microorganisms are going to change along with us as we change by being in such a dramatically different environment like, like being on Mars. And that's going to cause changes to our immune system as well. And so the immune systems of people living on Mars are going to become quite different from the people uh, who are, are still back on Earth. Um, one possibility is that people living on Mars um, just might not be exposed to the same number of infectious diseases that people on Earth are exposed to. Obviously, this is on everybody's mind right now with the, the COVID-19 pandemic in much the same way as Europeans that came to the New World 
infected Native Americans with diseases that they had no immunity to. People on Earth might affect Martians with uh, infect Martians with diseases that the Martians have no uh, resistance to. So it might become a sound policy to actually enforce separation between people on Earth and people on Mars to protect each of those populations from the unique types of infectious diseases that, that each has. Fascinating. Really liked your analogy in one of the talks you gave about how you know planets are similar to, to islands um, here on Earth and in terms of evolution. And you gave a good example when you talk about how E. coli reproduces a new generation every 10 minutes, too. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's true. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the islands in the Galapagos Islands, for example, you know, the reason that these have become such a, an iconic place for studying evolution is because um, having organisms isolated from one another on individual islands creates the perfect setup for evolutionary change. For my next question, I was wondering how could um, an improved understanding and modeling of, of quantum biology help us evaluate and better predict Martian mutations? Of quantum biology? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure what the direct connection is, but I think we do need to understand mutations. Um, it's something that we have um, a reasonable understanding of how mutations happen, um, but it's not usually possible to predict which mutations will happen and when. If we had some way of predicting how mutations would actually happen, which mutations, uh, then we might have a better way of predicting exactly what types of evolutionary changes would come about. What we do have now is the ability to go in and control mutations by causing them to happen deliberately. And that's the technology uh, called CRISPR. CRISPR-Cas9 technology gives us the ability to go in and edit and manipulate uh, DNA of any organism, including humans. And it acts by basically creating mutations. Um, and that, at least in theory, gives us the ability to, um, to guide our own evolution by making changes to our genomes that would potentially make us better adapted to, say, living on Mars. The problem is that we don't yet know enough about which changes to make to which genes. Awesome. Yeah, I was, I was reading that quantum tunneling plays an important role in mutations, um, I'll have to read up on that. It's not something I'm familiar with. And hey, you know, Martians could become uh, part tardigrade. <laughs> tardigrade human cells suppress X-ray-induced damage by as much as 40%. Yeah, it was a fascinating study. After six months in the ISS in microgravity, 90% of astronaut Scott Kelly's uh, affected genes returned to their normal expression level. Um, at the same time, 10% of those affected genes um, might be able to, you know, if you apply this towards evolution, 10% of those affected genes could um, benefit the DNA and genome of, of such a child and um, for future generations on Mars. Um, yeah, yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of types of changes that happen, right? So one is that um, the changes to which genes are being turned on and off, um, there is a, a mechanism by which those changes can be passed on to the next generation. This is what's called epigenetics, right? So epigenetic changes are changes 
to uh, to gene expression, turning genes on and off, that um, that get passed down from one generation to the next. And this is a, something that we're still in the early days of really understanding how it works, how often it works, how many generations this effect can can be passed on. Uh, but there's a lot of interest in in the evolutionary consequences of being able to uh, you know pass on gene expression through epigenetics. Yeah, I think it'll be fascinating to see how you know, such a preference um, could be developed in in digitalized genomes, and and how this could be incorporated into um, kind of the distribution of of settlements over there. Um, yeah, and, and how we can control which gene. I mean, if we know what genes would be beneficial to change, then you can go in theory and use something like CRISPR technology to make those changes to people to, to help them out, right? Yeah. I think in our um, textbooks and in our history here on Earth, I think that it's so fascinating to um, try to comprehend the, the relationship that space technology has had on biological evolution. I think they're... Um, major milestones in our in our grand evolution <laughs> yeah i mean in, in a lot of ways um all of our technology has had a big influence on our evolution this is actually a big part of what i i wrote about in in uh, future humans um because I, I you know what i what i found when i started getting into the the literature and interviewing people who are working in this area is that lots of aspects of technology are having an effect um, on both survival and reproduction, you know, the, the yin and yang of evolution, right? Amazing. I've come to the belief that uh, space technology is really a kind of a vessel to, you know, explore our, our, our true biological evolution, I suppose. Uh, well, I think it also makes us appreciate how good things are here on Earth, right? So it makes us realize how much our bodies and our biology is a consequence of the fact that we evolved on this particular planet with its all of its you know specific circumstances um, we really uh, are well adapted to to this environment and uh, and it's a challenge for us to go elsewhere I mean we've learned that we can we can go and we can live uh, uh, you know in low earth orbit for example if we have the right um, technology but our bodies are really finely tuned to the environment of Earth. Um, it would be very much beneficial to have a, um, a satellite on orbit or, or some kind of module that would be part of a um, space station in, in, in LEO that would be dedicated towards the uh, towards biological evolution of, of animals here. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it would be possible to set up some experiments like that. There's um, experiments done in research labs here on Earth where they use, for example, microorganisms like E. coli bacteria, which because of their short generation times, um, allow us to look at um, many, many, many generations of evolutionary change over just a short period of elapsed time. And we might be able to set up I mean, we could, if we wanted to, set up uh, the exact same type of experiment where we look at long-term evolutionary changes over hundreds of thousands or millions of generations, but we do it in space. We do it in low Earth orbit. And it would be really fascinating to compare 
those experiments to the exact same experiments happening here on Earth. Yeah, if you had simulated gravity, but you still had the high radiation environment, that would allow you to sort of control variables. You could tease apart how much of the changes are a consequence of yes. gravity versus radiation, for example. And my last question, uh, when we're on Mars and within 15 to 20 years, what, what impact would you like to have? What I like to have? Well, gosh, um, <laughs> certainly it would be an honor to be able to even have an opportunity to go to Mars. Look, I just think it's, it's, it's an example of, um, you know, the, the human spirit of adventure, the idea that we're even uh, contemplating creating human settlements on another planet and that I think it's true that a lot of us I think you said that you, you you would sign up for this right and a lot of people that I've spoken to would be interested in going and actually being settlers living on Mars I think it's just a uh, an example of of you know something in human nature that makes us adventurers makes us strive for for the unknown makes us willing to take on risks it's uh, very inspiring words over there Scott so it's an absolute pleasure to have you have you on our podcast today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. And and, and where could our um, listeners uh, connect with you and reach out? Yeah, the best place to go would be to my website. It's solomon.rice.edu. Um, you can find my book Future Humans on Amazon and other booksellers. I've also developed a uh, an online course, a digital course on evolutionary biology with the great courses. So if you search for the great courses and my name, my last name, uh, Solomon, yeah, um, please check check those out and um, uh, feel free to, to reach out with questions or comments.